1 John 1, verse 1. And the scripture says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Father, we ask this morning that as we look into your word and look at the truths that you have for us, Father, that you would enlighten our minds and our eyes, Lord, and our uh, hearts to the truths, Lord, about Jesus Christ that John presents to us in this chapter. Father, we know that all across this room are people from different backgrounds. Dear Lord, there are people at different stages of life. There are people with different burdens. And Lord, some of these folks need to be encouraged and lifted up. And we pray that you would do that this morning. Father, there are some in here who need to be confronted. Lord, there are some that need to be rebuked. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would do that. There are some, Lord, that need to be convicted, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will do that. Lord, but through all of it, we pray that your Holy Spirit will work and accomplish your will. But Lord, above all, we're here to worship a holy God. And so, Father, we purposefully exalt your name and ask that you would be honored and praised, and Lord, that all glory would be given to you. Now, Father, we pray that these truths will make an impact upon us as we leave this place today. And, Lord, these things we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. In these ten verses of this chapter, John introduces Jesus. And he names some wonderful benefits that we receive through Jesus. And I'm going to tell you that even the word benefits is not good enough. I just could not think of a better word to to use here. Because what John is doing here is he's basically saying this, Jesus gives us wonderful blessings. And we oftentimes think of salvation as an end in itself, but salvation is not an end in itself. Salvation is just the beginning. And as John opens up the, his account of Jesus Christ, he makes it very plain to us here that salvation is not only the redemption of our souls, but it is a life of wonderful blessings that you did not have before you accepted Christ as your Savior. And beginning in verse number one, John gives us an introduction. He says this, that which was from the beginning, 
Now, from the beginning, it's referring to Jesus Christ. And so the, the word that here is referring to Jesus Christ. So that from, which was from the beginning, the idea of beginning speaks of Jesus's eternality. Now, verse number one is just the introduction. And when we get into verse number two, we're just going to see these wonderful blessings that we have through Jesus Christ. But this idea of being from the beginning speaks of Jesus's eternality. When John wrote his uh, gospel, he started that gospel by saying this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that, of course, refers to Jesus Christ. And so he begins this little book, the first epistle of John, talking about the same thing, that which was from the beginning. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, a verse that we like to use during Christmas time because it talks about Bethlehem. But in that little Old Testament prophet, it says this, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That's Jesus Christ. So he begins his little epistle by pointing out that Jesus Christ is eternal. And then he says this, which we have heard. Now, this is all by way of introduction, but the first verse is pretty important. And so he's talking about hearing Jesus Christ. The meaning is not just a casual listening. You know, like uh, when you all leave church today and you're driving home, the family may be talking, and those of you who drive, you know, you may be listening to the conversation, but you're really focusing on the road, or at least you should be. And uh, that's not the idea here. This is not just a casual listening. It means to hear with the intention of comprehending. Uh, comprehending it takes concentration. This is John saying, I've listened intently, and I've learned the lessons, and I'm about to pass them on. But then he uses the next phrase. Look at verse number one. He says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. That seems a little redundant, doesn't it? We've seen with our eyes, but we've looked upon. No, there, there's, there's a, a, a difference in that, in those two phrases. The second one has a little deeper meaning. It takes it just a little bit further. It is the idea of to view attentively with, with contemplation. It's a word that was used when an important person during the time would get up and speak, a person that you admired. And so when that person would get up to speak and you were uh, in admiration of this individual and you were listening, that is the idea behind this phrase. Uh, the, what what, Paul, or what uh, John is saying here is that I looked upon Jesus intently. I looked for the purpose of, of learning the lessons. I looked with a concentration. I admired this man. I admired the God in the flesh. And so I looked upon him with the intent of learning everything that I could learn. And then he uses this next phrase. And our hands have handled. Now that's a really interesting phrase. That last word, handled comes from a root word that was used to describe a person playing a musical instrument. We had several young people over here playing. I'm counting myself in that. We several young people over there playing instruments this morning. And in order to be able to do that, it takes practice, right? 
You have to be familiar with that instrument. When you, when you look at the music, you can't be wondering, I wonder which button to push down to play that note. You have to have it memorized. And so you play the instrument with practice because you've done it before. And here's the idea. Um, John is saying, I know this man. Let me ask a question this morning, church. Who was it that took, or who was it that Jesus took on the Mount of Transfiguration? It was Peter, James, and John. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus pulled three uh, people aside uh, and went a little further with them and asked them to pray for him, who were they? Peter, James, and John. John was there. John ministered to Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I know him. And, and in this first verse, he refers to his ear, his ears, he refers to his eyes, he refers to the handling. And, and what he's saying is, I know who this is. And that's his first verse. I know who this is. I want to tell you about this one. And you know who he is? Are you ready? Listen, here he is. He's the word of life. And that's the way John starts his book. Jesus is the word of life. And once he establishes that and who Jesus is, and John saying, I witnessed it, I, I, I saw it, I heard him, I, I handled him, I knew him. Once he, once he gets past that introduction, then he begins to give us these wonderful truths about Jesus Christ. But see, this is the same man who stated in John 1 when he wrote his gospel about the beginning, the, in the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God. And then he went on in verse number 4 of that first chapter of John to say this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the Word of life. That's Jesus. What a beautiful phrase. It sets the stage for these verses. Look at verse number 2. For the life was manifested... And we have seen it and, he, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. You see the grammar of that verse? He refers to Jesus Christ as that eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus is the expression of life itself. He's not just the giver of eternal life. He is eternal life. Now, if you would listen to me intently here, I know y'all probably have an hour less sleep last night than what you would normally get, but please listen to me intently. And if there's anything that you don't get from this point forward, please get your mind wrapped around this point, because this is the very first point that John makes in reference to telling us about Jesus Christ, and it's extremely important. He is eternal life. Those of us who have eternal life have it because of a relationship with him. Now, we have a physical example of, of this concept while Jesus walked on this earth. I'm not going to have you turn to these passages, but I am going to refer to uh, three instances in the life of Jesus Christ. One was in Luke chapter 7. He came across a funeral. I don't know if the Jesus intentionally walked toward the funeral. The funeral came by him. Nonetheless, you know that it was an intent of Jesus's part to be there. It was a widow woman from the town of Nain. She had one son. Her son had passed away. And Jesus Christ being there when the funeral was taking place, you know what he did? He interrupted the funeral. And he stopped and he spoke to the dead body. And he said this, young man. 
I say unto thee, Arise. You know what the young man did? He got up and he came to life. There's not a single one of us in this room that could look at a dead body and say, Arise. And have that body arise. Jesus Christ is life. At the resurrection of Lazarus, or excuse me, let me back up and talk about the raising of the daughter of Jairus. Jairus came to Jesus when his daughter was sick. And he said, would you come heal her? Jesus said, I'll come. And before Jesus made it there, this little girl passed away. And then they sent a messenger that said, don't bother the master. She's already gone. She's dead. Jesus said, don't worry about it. And he went there. And when he got there, they mocked him. He went into this little girl who was laying there. Her body was dead. He walked in there. He looked at her and said, maid, arise. And you know what she did? She got up. She was alive. When he went to visit his friend Lazarus, after he had died, he had been dead for four days. The decomposition of the body had set in, so much so that his sister said, by this time he stinketh. Jesus said, take the stone away. And as they opened up that grave, Jesus Christ called out into that grave to his friend. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And you know what Lazarus did? He came forth. Who, who has the authority to tell the dead to arise. Who has that kind of authority? I'll tell you who has that kind of authority. The one who is eternal life. That's who has that kind of authority. Every time that he faced a death, Jesus Christ interrupted that, and all he had to do was speak the word. Just speak. He spoke. Is it no wonder that John refers to him as the word of life? With his words he spoke, and the dead came to life. That's our Savior. That's who we serve. But that has ramifications for us, too. When Jesus stood before Martha, the brother of Lazarus, he said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. You're in 1 John. Flip back to the last chapter, 1 John chapter 5, and look at verse number 20, please. 1 John five twenty. In 1 John 5.20, it says this, And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. He doesn't refer to him as the giver of eternal life. Now, we could say that, and that wouldn't be wrong. That would be correct. He is the giver of eternal life, but he is so much more than just the giver of eternal life. He is eternal life. And John makes that very plain. So at the beginning of his book and at the end of his book, he makes, it very, makes us very aware of the fact that Jesus Christ is eternal life. Listen, eternal life is in a person. Now, if Jesus can physically raise a person from the dead, what do you think about spiritual life? How much more does that mean to you and me? Listen, think about this. We've got 
all kinds of religions around us that tend to mess things up and, and they tend to uh, add this or take away that. And whatever the case may be, they come to try to come to their own formulation of eternal life. But I'm telling you what, eternal life is not just believing that Jesus exists. The Bible tells us that the devils believe and tremble. They know that Jesus is real. Eternal life is not knowing a set of doctrines or, or catechisms and being able to quote them back. And you know what? Doctrine is important. I firmly believe in sound doctrine. We have to have it. But listen, just knowing the doctrine and being able to give me the bullet points does not make you saved. That's not eternal life. Eternal life is not wrapped up in your baptism. The baptismal water is not a holy water that washes away your sins. That baptism doesn't save you. Eternal life is not having a sensational emotional experience. And I've talked to people who have seen angels and seen this and seen that and bright lights and all kinds of things that they've seen. But I'm telling you what, that is not salvation. Eternal life is a person. It's Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, get, a, get, 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 get your mind wrapped around, that, around this. That's one reason why you can't earn your salvation with good works. You can't put good works in one side of the scale and your bad works or your sins on the other side of a scale and earn it because it's a relationship with God. It's not good outweighing bad. It's a gift. It's a relationship. A gift that requires repentance and a broken heart. You can't earn that. Praise God for that offer of salvation that Jesus gives to you and me. Let me ask you this morning, do you know my Savior? Do you know Him? You need to. If you don't, we often relegate our Christianity to a framework of do's and don'ts. But my life as a Christian is so much more than that. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a walk. It's a walk with the very one from whom I draw my life. That's my Christian walk. That's my Christianity. He leads me. Do you understand that? He leads. He guides. He feeds. He refreshes. He gives me strength to accomplish His will every day. And as I walk with Him, He directs my steps. That's my Savior. That's the eternal life that I possess in Him. And I don't want to disappoint Him. I don't want to disappoint Him. The world has nothing to offer me that's any better than that. Are you all with me this morning? When I was in farm country down in Indiana, and God said to me, I want you to go to Chicago. I want you to pastor Brentwood Baptist Church, and I'll walk with you there. I'd have been crazy not to go, or in this case, come. What is God speaking to you about this morning? What is God putting his finger on in your life? If you have eternal life this morning, it's a relationship with your Savior, and He is constantly uh, trying to direct your steps. And let me say this, you'd be crazy to damage that relationship for anything that this world has to offer, including your pride. Including your pride. The ones who reject Jesus are destined to eternal damnation. Do you hear me? 
It's not a pretty thing to talk about, but it is the destiny of every one of us who have not accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. So don't reject him. Because to be separated from the eternal word of life is eternal death. It is. So what does Jesus have? What does he give us? He is eternal life. But then look at verse number three, and I want you to see this. He gives us fellowship with believers. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. We'll get to the last half of the verse in just a minute. Let's park here. He gives us fellowship with believers. Fellowship with us, John says. I want you to know this gift of eternal life because I want you to fellowship with me. Now let me ask this this morning. Isn't the fellowship of true believers something that's precious and sweet? You know, the sweetest fellowship among people on this earth happens when both individuals are walking with the one who is eternal life. When that happens, there is sweet fellowship between people. Yesterday in our men's Bible study, we talked through this a little bit. The idea of uh, having folks around us who are of like mind. I received a call a while back from someone who had visited our church, and they were concerned about a particular member of their family. And they wanted that member of their family to have some good influence in their life and some good relationships. And you know what I told them? I said, look, uh, they can find that in this church, but you need to tell them to be here every service. Tell them to come. Tell them to be a part of this family. And as they come and as they fellowship with fellow believers and as they're obedient to the word of God and those that are sitting next to them are obedient to the word of God, then that bond begins to, uh, to, to tighten and that, that sweet fellowship that's between individuals. And I got to tell you that I don't need to convince many of you about that because many of you in here have expressed it to me. You know it's true that God gives us that fellowship. But look at the last half of verse number three. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What else do we have in verse 3? We have fellowship with God. He says, and truly. This is the foundation. This is what holds up the entire concept of fellowship with other believers. We can have fellowship with each other because we have fellowship with God. As our fellowship with God grows deeper, so does our ability to have unity in Christ as a body of believers. There's no sweeter fellowship than that of a Christian with his God when he's walking in obedience. And there's no sweeter fellowship among people on this earth if the two of them, than the two of them walking in obedience to God. I've been in different countries, and I praise God for the opportunity. And uh, even in being in different countries where I don't speak the language of the individuals, there is a unity, a bond in the Holy Spirit. And you sense that and you feel that. And to be in a church service uh, in, in a language that you don't understand, but to be there among fellow Christians who are worshiping God, you know there's unity. There's no place I'd rather be than with God's people. I was asked uh, probably about three years ago uh, about our church. Somebody said, 
your church is made up of a, of a variety of nationalities. Uh, yeah, it's true. And they asked this question, how do they worship together? I said, quite well, thank you. I said, I may have a little bit of a hard time understanding all of them, but we worship together really well. And I'm sure they have a hard time understanding me at times, especially when I get into my country analogies and start talking about things like that. But there's no sweeter fellowship, is there, than what we have in Jesus Christ. Well, look at verse number four. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. You know what else Jesus gives us? He gives us joy. You know, we're living in a crazy world, aren't we? You know, I just turned 60 this year. And if you would have told me 20 years ago that the world would be like it is now, I'd have had a hard time getting my mind wrapped around that. This world has gone haywire. Our country is a mess. There's no doubt about it. But that should never, Christian, it should never take away our joy. Joy is rooted deeper than the present circumstances. Joy comes from a relationship with God. Knowing that I am His and that He will never fail me. Nehemiah said this, he said, For the joy of the Lord is my strength. When circumstances get tough, it is that deep-rooted joy that will give us the strength to, uh, to be what we need to be and to do what we need to do. The joy of the Lord is my strength. There is an understanding in the midst of difficult situations, whether it be health issues that you're dealing with or whether it be financial issues or whatever the case may be that you're dealing with or relational issues. In the midst of all of that, there is this deep-rooted joy that you belong to God, that He will never fail you, that will give you the strength to get through the issues that this world throws at us. Because this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. This life is temporary. I'm on my way to my eternal home. And I want you to notice in verse number four, the last few words, that your joy may be, what's the last word? Full. Full. Nothing lacking. Only Christ can give you that, Christian. Only Christ can give you that. Horatio Spafford was a successful Christian lawyer in Chicago. Back in the mid-1800s, he was wealthy, he was successful, he was a believer, he trusted Christ, but he lost his investments in the great Chicago fire of 1871. After two years of working to rebuild, he decided to take his family to Europe for a reprieve. Right before he was to leave, the business of rebuilding held him up. His family and he had tickets on a steamship to travel over to Europe. At the last minute, he was caught up in business, and so he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of, them, ahead of him. He said, you go on, I'll be there as soon as I can. I just have to stay behind to take care of this. In November of 1873, while they were crossing the Atlantic on the steamship Villa de Harve, the ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel, and 226 people were killed 
including all four of Horatio Spafford's daughters. Annie, his oldest, was 12. Maggie was 7. Bessie was 4. And they had an 18-month-old baby. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy, but all four daughters died. When she arrived in Cardiff, Wales, she sent him a telegram with two words. It said, saved alone. Could you imagine receiving that telegram? Shortly afterwards, Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife. Could you imagine knowing that your four daughters had died at sea and that your wife was in a foreign land uh, grieving uh, without family or anyone around? And as he passed near the area where his daughters had died, as he was traveling, God overwhelmed him. And he began to pen some words that we still have today. And the words were like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way. Or when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say. It is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. Could you imagine, after losing all of your wealth, losing your four daughters, knowing that your wife was alone grieving, being able to sit down and pen those words? You know why? He had Jesus, he had a joy. He had a peace that rose above the circumstances. If you don't have that, my friend, you need Jesus. In verse number five, he says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In verse number five, we see that Jesus gives us illumination. This world is has so much darkness in it, doesn't it? There's so much darkness, there's so much wickedness, there's so much confusion. And oftentimes in Scripture, the idea of light or illumination, the idea is that it gives us a vision. It gives us clarity. It lets us know where to go. It lets us know where to, uh, or it lets us see what's going on around us. And it gives us a vision that you wouldn't have if your eyes were closed or you were in the dark. That's the idea. And aren't you glad that in the midst of this crazy mixed up world that's full of darkness, that we can go to God's word. And as we open God's word, we can understand what our attitude should be concerning all matters that we face. When you get a little confused as to what's going on in the country and you don't know what to do, pick up God's word. When you get a little confused about life and what's going on around you, pick up God's word. When you need to make a decision that seems a little overwhelming, pick up God's Word. God's Word gives light. We don't blindly go through this world, Christian. We don't blindly walk around. Let me ask, who determines what moral value is or is not? Does culture determine moral values? Does the political party with the biggest number of votes determine uh, moral values? 
Praise the Lord, no. The creator of all mankind determines moral values, right? If you want to know what is morally right and wrong, you go to his word. We had a parent call this past week to check out our school. She drove or drives by here frequently. And she has a, a daughter in elementary and she doesn't want her daughter. Well, let me say it this way. She wants her daughter to be taught a different perspective than what she's getting in a public school. People are searching for truth in the midst of this world, aren't they? We have it. We have it. We have the illumination. We have light. God is light. We're, we're, we're not just dealing with social issues, even personal issues. God will guide you. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says this, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. God will lead you one step at a time, but until you take that step, he can't lead you into the next step. So you need to be obedient in the first step. And as you take that step, God illuminates the next step. And as you take that step, He illuminates the next step. God doesn't leave us guessing. He gives us light. He directs our paths. He promises illumination. Look at verse number 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. God gives us truth. God is the perfect judge with the perfect insight. He will never lead us astray. And he sees right into the very heart of man. Go with me, go with me please, to Jeremiah 17. Put a marker here. We're going to come back, of course. Go to Jeremiah 17. And we're going to read verses 9 and 10. And Jeremiah 17, verse number 9 is a verse that we're quite familiar with. He says this in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, it's hard to know truth in a world where men's hearts are deceitful. It's hard to know truth. It's hard to find truth in a world where men's hearts are deceitful. And Jeremiah asks the question, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, and, and, and that doesn't uh, leave anybody out. That includes me and that includes you. Our hearts are deceitful. We oftentimes deceive ourselves. The Bible talks about self-deception and how deceiving sin is. And so when we're involved in sin, we literally deceive ourselves. And so this heart of ours is deceitful. It's wicked. And then he asks the question, who can know it? Who can straighten this out? Who can show me the truth? The next verse answers the question. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. There's a beautiful truth. Though your heart is deceitful, God will search it out for us. If we surrender, he can separate truth from deception. God can give us truth over wickedness. God understands. 
Go with me to Proverbs 20. Just keep backing up a little bit. Go to, in your Bible that is, uh, go to Proverbs chapter 20. And look at verse number 27. There's a truth in this verse. A truth that helps us to understand how God does this. 2027. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Man is made of body, soul, and spirit. The spirit of man works as the candle of the Lord. It's like God's flashlight. So God, the Holy Spirit, speaks to you through your spirit, and by that, he searches the inward parts of the belly. The idea is this. It's through your spirit that the Holy Spirit speaks to you. It is through your spirit that once a person is saved and that spirit is quickened, the Holy Spirit can commune with you. And then as you submerse yourself into God's words and as you are obedient and he leads you step by step, God's spirit speaks to you through your spirit. And that candle of the Lord begins to search out your heart and God begins to clean things out. And he begins to say, you know what, there's something over here that is not right. This needs to be cleaned. There's an attitude over here. There's an action over here. There's a commitment that you have here that's not right. There's something over here that we need to get straightened out. And God, through His Holy Spirit, speaks to your spirit. And it's like that spotlight of God's Word begins to search out that deceitful, wicked heart that all of us has. And little by little, God begins to clean that out. And He brings it to light. And there are individuals who, when he brings it to light, will say, yes, Lord, and they'll surrender, and then God can move on, and they're cleaner than they were before, and God can just continue to conform them into the image of Jesus Christ. But then there are others, because men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil, that they try to extinguish the light, and they try to shut down the light, or they try to stay away from the light, and they don't want to hear the light, and they just want to keep their heart dark and deceived. Please don't be that person. God promises us truth. Now go back with me to 1 John, please. Chapter 1, the verse that we are just talking about, verse 6. In verse 6, we're talking about Jesus giving us truth. It says this, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. You know what that says? Some people will talk like they walk with the Lord, but their lifestyle says otherwise. And John is saying, If you say you have fellowship with him, but you continue to walk like the world, and you continue to do the things that you did, you continue to live like you were before, you're lying. You're lying. Let me ask you a question this morning, church. What speaks louder, your walk or your talk? Your walk. Don't be a verse 6 Christian. Don't be a verse 6 Christian. Don't talk the talk without walking the walk. Then we get to verse number 7. And verses 7 through 10 give us a tremendous promise. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. 
If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is writing to Christians. And he's saying, look, if you say that you're sinless, you've already reached a point of self-deception. The truth's not in you. So when you have sin in your life, you know what you need to do according to verse number 9? You need to confess it. You need to confess. And if you will confess to Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness that is offered to you and cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. God offers us daily cleansing. Aren't you glad for that daily cleansing? I certainly am. This is what makes it possible for us to have that close walk with Christ. That walk that we just talked about earlier. You can have that walk with Christ because you're offered daily cleansing. Now, this word confess is an interesting word in verse number nine. If we confess our sins, that means to say the same thing as another. That's the idea behind this word, to say the same thing as another, to agree with them, to assent to what they are saying. It carries the idea of saying the same words together. That's the idea. So here's the concept. I am in complete agreement with God about my sin. When I confess my sin, I see my sin the way God sees my sin. I call my sin what God calls my sin. This is not an idea of justifying or, or blame shifting or minimizing my sin. It's the idea of confessing, God, you called this sin. And this is in my life. God, I have sinned. I agree with you. You are right. I am wrong. God, this is confession. Confession is not saying, yeah, I did this, but. And then continuing on to justify. Yeah, I did wrong, but you don't know. Confessing is not just saying, I messed up. Confessing is agreeing with God's view of my sin. That is confession. And when we reach that point, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, John said, let me tell you about the word of life. There are some people in here this morning who no doubt need to be introduced to this word of life, Jesus Christ. There are some of you in here this morning who do not have a relationship with my Savior. You can take care of that before you leave. There are people in this church who would be glad to sit down with you and take God's word and to show you how you can know that your sins are forgiven and that you have Jesus Christ as your Savior and that you have eternal life. We can take care of that before you leave today. But there are also people in this room who are Christians who need to come to God and just make some confessions, don't you? We just need to understand that God offers us all of these things here and that these are far better than anything that this world has to offer. And maybe there are some people in here who has kind of shunned their Savior and they've not taken advantage of this and they've not developed the relationship and God is standing with arms outstretched and wants you to come back to Him, but you need to confess and receive that forgiveness. 
What a privilege it is to know him as your Savior.